You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one-stop shop for true conservative news and views here at the conservative conscience, powered by Blaze Media. And it is Tuesday, February 26th. What a dumpster fire of a day for me. I'm telling you, it's been hard to find any window to put out the show. So I don't know when you're going to get it. But man, is it a tough day for me. I'm basically working from the home office today. And I didn't have a car because, you know, every every month there's something else with this car. Uh, and now the starter wasn't working. So I needed, needed a new starter. It cost me a couple hundred bucks. And I forgot to pick up the car, What the one window of opportunity I had. So we're working on one car. Obviously, the youngest goes to uh, a play group. And my wife had picked today to renew her driver's license. And she only has another week left. And she had to wait for four plus hours four hours to renew her driver's license. That's how slow it was. That's what the line was like there. And then, you know, we had to find someone to pick up our kid. It was just a real dumpster fire today. And I was just thinking throughout all this, look at the price of being a law-abiding citizen. Obviously, you don't want to go for even a day without a updated driver's license even though you know you're going to sit there for a four-hour wait, you're not like, hey, well, maybe I'll come back another day. Well, there is no other day. It's the end of the line. I got, I got to do it. I'm a law-abiding citizen. This is, this is what all of us are. To think that illegals could just come in, get everything, be their whole being here is illegal, and somehow they never have problems. So we sit and abide by the law so our entire political class can make a mockery out of the rule of law. That's just a thought I wanted to begin today's show with because it it really, really bothers me about this stolen sovereignty. Everything you and I would want to do, we'd get in trouble with if we tried to bend the law. But somehow, if you're a protected class of people that don't even belong here... You have the largest army of politicians, media people, business people, and lawyers protecting you. Just had to get that off my chest. Anyway, we obviously have the continuing saga, which is not even big news, but it should be the biggest news for conservatives. With this socially liberal judicial nominee put forth by the Federalist Society Judicial Crisis Network, and all these phony uh, so-called conservative um, legal eagle type of groups. And that is basically... Sorry, I got my phone here just going running off the hook because I'm making so many calls about this issue. But basically, this is the fight of the week. I'm telling you, Josh Hawley, freshman senator, he is standing for us. He is standing tall. He is standing strong. And we need to back him. So what's what's the latest news? They're now basically saying that he's a failure. He himself once voted for a pro-choice nominee. Um, it's not so bad. What do you expect? Do you expect us to have a blood oath from these people? Uh, when do we usually have big paper trails anyway? All these arguments being put forth to excuse this nonsense. All I have to say is this one point. The libertarians who are backing her, they have certitude. They have a guaranteed understanding of how she will rule on administrative law, their issue, and that's why they support her. Liberals are guaranteed to know how their people rule 
on their issues. Is it too much to ask that traditional social conservatives, when we are promised that we have a White House that's open to all all of our nominees, you have a Republican Senate, Senate of 53 senators, and you're telling me that the entire purpose of voting Republican is to get better judges on, and we're not going to fix the the crisis of judicial supremacy. We're going to countenance it. We're going to legitimize it. But by golly, we're going to appoint our, our judges. So is it too much to ask that we actually get some degree of confidence in how they're going to rule on the civilization issues of immigration, of life, of marriage, of sexuality, all the racial issues that, are, that get embedded into our Constitution? Why should we be left guessing, especially when we know Naomi Rayo, this individual nominee is personally a socially liberal. Is it too much to ask? You know, is it too much to ask? Evidently it is. They can't have it both ways. They can't say that this is the most important thing. And then like, well, Daniel, Oh, what you expect to get, you know, a litmus test. Well, I thought that was the whole point. How do you have How do you have a situation where these guys totally endorse every bit of judicial supremacy? Because of that judicial supremacy, we're getting raked over the coals on issues like immigration. And we won't even ask the nominees their broad philosophy on these issues. I'm not even saying a specific question like birthright citizenship for illegals, but just the broad sense of plenary power doctrine that the political branches of government control immigration law and illegals don't have an affirmative right to immigrate and and to sue in court for rights to stay here at least. Is that too much to ask for? Yet, this nominee... Naomi Rayo, again, being nominated to the second highest court, already being touted by her supporters as a conservative Supreme Court pick. She sent a letter with other former Supreme Court law clerks clerks, endorsing Michelle Friedland, one of Obama's nominees to the Ninth Circuit, who was one of the judges that created a right to immigrate. It's really very difficult here. And again... This gets back to um, the September confirmation hearings over Kavanaugh. We never bothered asking him about immigration, but actually, Dick Durbin, the Democrat, did. And he asked if he agreed with Karen Henderson's dissent in the Garza case. Basically, if you remember, you had this illegal teenager who, in the end, it turns out, I, I think she wasn't even underage, demanded that the Office of Refugee Resettlement take her to an abortion clinic to to get an abortion. She came here to get an abortion. And Kavanaugh ruled the right way. He didn't rule with her. He said that, um, you know, the government wasn't particularly blocking her, was allowing her to be driven to an abortion clinic by a third party, just didn't want to do it themselves. And that didn't run amok, you know, Roe or Casey or Hellerstadt or any of these things. He hemmed and hawed. He did it narrow. Karen Henderson came in with her dissent and was like, what the heck? Forget about immigration. Forget about abortion jurisprudence. What illegal has the right to come in and demand a real right? Like the Second Amendment or First Amendment to donate to a campaign. They, they don't have a right. A legal immigrant doesn't have a right, much less an illegal immigrant. And you want to tell me she has a right to demand an abortion? And we noted early on, we were concerned that Kavanaugh didn't sign on to that dissent. But okay, they have different styles. You never know. You sometimes can't read too much into that. But then we had the confirmation hearing and Durbin asked him about it. And he said he didn't agree with Henderson. That, yeah, if this girl would have been a, uh, an adult, yeah, of course she would have been entitled to an abortion. So there you have it. He doesn't believe in the plenary power doctrine on immigration. We knew that. But everything got so overshadowed by the crazy allegations that we forgot to ever vet out, is she a conservative? But that's the thing. 
All we care about now are a couple of libertarian issues. And again, as I've noted before, as I've noted before, I, I agree with them that we have a, a run, uh, an administrative state that has run amok. We all understand that. But the courts didn't cause that. That's a problem with the political branches. Now, the libertarians want to more aggressively use the courts to slap it down. Okay. But that's, that's not as serious as what we're dealing with on the civilization issues, on immigration and marriage and life and sexuality, where the courts are screwing us. They're the ones concocting these rights. That is a judicial problem. But they're not concerned about the judiciary run amok being regarded as a veto on our civilization. They want to use and harness that veto power over things that we're not redressing in the political branches. That's nonsense. So I'm glad Josh Hawley is um, standing up for this. I'm going to try to get him on the show. And uh, it's just unbelievable. And again, Josh Hawley is not some sort of legal dissident like I am. He was a constitutional professor. He clerked for John Roberts. I mean, if he's raising flags, we need to look at that. This is everything you need to know about what's wrong with the legal movement on the right. All right, man. I just want to close with a couple of points here before we move on on the judiciary. So first off, Ed Whelan put out uh, his daily newsletter. I, I I get it. He is one of the best in the legal profession. Uh, clearly is a social conservative. We all agree on the issues. But at the end of the day, you know, he's got to defend these guys. So he's like, yeah, I don't know what, what these people's problems are, what Holly's issue is. Uh, Rayo, you know, she's no different than anyone else where we don't have that big of a paper trail. Many of these people were never judges before, and I don't know what the complaint is. The point he is missing, and many others are missing, is that, yes, that's our point. We're not vetting them enough. Everyone's talking about, oh, Trump appointed this number of appellate judges, this number of district judges, but we're assuming they're all good. Uh, when, when we know more than half of the Bush ones are bad. No, these are different. We have the Federalist Society really vetting them. Well, I mean, some of them were outstanding, but not all of them. So it's funny, National Review is now hitting Hawley saying that one of the dudes that he voted for this year, he, he already voted for a pro-abortion judge. So a couple things are wrong with that. First of all, so they're admitting that not everyone put out by this administration, by the Federalist Society, is, is good. They're also admitting that, oh, so you're, you're admitting she is pro-choice. Notice how they don't rebut the substance of Holly's concerns. Again, when we have a new freshman senator fighting for us, if you don't, if he doesn't see the cavalry, he's not going to do this again. This is, the, this is a big part of the problem we had with Ted Cruz. He just got tired of being the only one out on the limb. So I mean, you can't have it both ways. Either the administration only picks the greatest nominees in the world or they don't. But if they're saying, yeah, Holly already voted for a pro-abortion uh, judge in his, his short career there. What a joke. Yeah, he played team ball. But at some point, he's got his concerns. So that's what Carrie K- Severino from you know the chief counsel for uh, Judicial Crisis Network put out on National Review that uh, Holly Reddy voted in favor of Karen Imbergut to be a judge uh, from Oregon. But again, that's a self-indictment of, of her people putting these people up. But th- this, is, this is the D.C. circuit where she is really being rumored the minute she gets on there to being fast-tracked. Remember, that's how it seems to go nowadays. They get fast-tracked. You got to look at the appellate level, especially the D.C. Circuit. 
So yes, th- this one is a little bit different. And then finally, there is the point that, I mean, you know, again, to speak to Ed Whelan's point, we 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 haven't had someone of this level who is known to be personally a social liberal. So it is a little different from a run-of-the-mill district judge who we know has always been active in pro-life circles, albeit we don't know exactly his jurisprudence. Again, I'm I'm not saying that that's good. I think that it, that is a problem. They're missing the point. So anyway, Holly is just simply asking for questions. Why can't we ask? So he his press office sent out an, a copy of a letter he sent to Rayo to just uh, ask her certain questions. And basically it's this, after this review, I continue to have questions about your judicial philosophy and approach to constitutional law. Namely, I have concerns about some statements in your academic writings. In your law review note, a backdoor to policymaking, a use of philosophers by Supreme Court, you wrote that, quote, extra legal sources can help judges to determine when a departure from past practice might be necessary. Philosophy might be a vehicle for legal change. I would like to discuss this observation, your approach to the use of outside sources in interpreting, interpreting statutes in the Constitution. In another article, Three Concepts of Dignity in Constitutional Law, you discuss how American constitutional law has a long history of treating individual choice and autonomy as an integral and preeminent component of human worth. I have concerns about your views on whether the Constitution confers substantive constitutional rights to dignity and whether those rights trump democratically passed laws. Later in Three Concepts of Dignity in Constitutional Law, you state that, quote, the Casey plurality treated a woman's right to choose an abortion as part of her constitutionally protected liberty because her choice implicated both dignity and autonomy, unquote, and that the plurality opinion, quote, linked reproductive choices with the essential nature of the individual and emphasized the importance of the freedom to make such choices without compulsion from the state. I have questions about your analysis of the court's decision in Casey as well as in Lawrence v. Texas, Gonzalez v. Carhartt and other constitutional cases discussed in that article. So there we are. I mean... If it all revolves around appointing better judges, shouldn't we actually know that they are where we want them to be? Oh, whoops, I forgot. What is the we and what is the want them to be? Therein lies the problem. We don't have a movement that believes in anything conservative, not at a professional level, and that's what we need to need to create. Oh, what, one other thing, by the way, on the judiciary. Isn't it funny how in about 25 instances, by my count, roughly, give or take a couple, courts have said that Trump must continue Obama's discretionary and often illegal executive actions. Right? Different things, you know, such as Obama unilaterally deciding to put transgenders in the military. So Trump's like, all right, you know, just simply reverts back to what it was before. And courts said he can't do it. The one thing this president does that is categorically illegal, suddenly they have no problem with. Suddenly there's nothing wrong. This is hilarious. Remember Trump directed the ATF to unilaterally treat bump stocks like machine guns. Nobody could say that the statute that regulates automatic weapons, it was very deliberate that only machine guns are going to be regulated that way and not semi-autos. Something that you could just increase the rapid um, recoil of the trigger. You could, Heck, you could do it through a shoelace that that would be regulated like a machine gun would be absurd. Even if it's a matter of policy, you think that's a good idea. But the notion that you wouldn't need a new statute for that is absurd. Yet, a federal judge ruled Monday that the Trump administration could proceed with its rule to ban bump stocks. This was District Judge Dabney Friedrich. She declined to issue an injunction. I have not read the opinion. It was lengthy. Again, this wasn't on the merits. It was declining to issue an injunction. So we'll shut down our border. We'll shut down our sovereignty. But the one thing that he does that is just 
there's no emergency about anyway. It's clearly outside of statute. Declines to touch it. United States District Court for District of Columbia, Dabney Friedrich, this was a Donald Trump appointee. Okay? Now, now look, to be consistent, I'm not into putting on injunctions at district court um, on abstract policy issues. You know, you can give relief to a specific plaintiff and say, all right, you could keep your bump stock, you could use it. But... I will say, I mean, Trump retroactively banned that. So you got Second Amendment and you got retroactivity. I mean, if there's any avenue of real individual rights that are at stake and any avenue where it's not just Congress, but an executive authority clearly stepping outside of statute to do it. Again, if you're into judicial supremacy, I mean, this is this is your case. But here it's a Trump judge and uh she uh, declined to issue that ruling. So just fu- kind of funny that the one area where Trump clearly violated the law, uh, suddenly there's no injunction. So something something to chew on. Now, related, we're going to move away from the courts, but we're not going to move away from the courts because it all gets back to the courts. Trump's Emergency declaration and the vote in Congress today and this week. It is all messed up. This whole issue is messed up. There's so many people doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, the right thing for the wrong reasons, the wrong thing for the right reasons, all sorts of permutations. Because everything is messed up. Everything gets back to the fact that the judiciary messed things up. The judiciary messed up the leverage on DACA. The judiciary messed up, caused the border crisis. And the judiciary also limited Congress's authority to even go after Trump. I take the opposite approach on executive authority than everyone else does on this entire debate. Let me explain. Let me unpack this. Before we get to just kind of the deep legal constitutional discussion we're going to have, I just want to say politically, Trump has really screwed us on this. By signing this insane law, this insane bill, not keeping a short-term CR alive, not acting like it's an emergency, he puts a lot of our good guys in a rough position. Thomas Massey, as you saw, announced that he's voting for the resolution of disapproval. He's like, look, I I agree it's an emergency at at the border. I just don't think it's an emergency when the president doesn't get a particular appropriation he didn't get from Congress. And I can't I can't argue with that. Ultimately, if I were in Congress, I would vote for it because I believe it is an emergency. I've justified that. And I believe that ultimately he has the authority, but it is very sinister what he's doing. We laid out a path had to do this properly. But uh, it appears his only emergency was to distract conservatives who are upset that he signed the bill. Heck, I even wonder if he's even going to use this money in the end, if it was all a distraction, just like his birthright citizenship executive order that never came, which show, demonstrates that this entire court case is a joke because it's not even ripe yet. No funds have even been expended. Now, this whole thing is just ridiculous because we're all put in a rough position. I just had a long conversation with Mark Morgan. Terrific, terrific guy who was chief of Border Patrol in 2016. And we were just lamenting how Republicans suck, the people around Trump sucks, You know, he is the purest of pure guys. He just wants to solve the issue. He was never involved in politics. He was always in law enforcement. He was a cop. He was an FBI agent. Then he was Border Patrol chief. He understands what a deep-seated problem this is from the cartels and the gangs and the crime and the security concerns, the fiscal drain from illegal immigration. He gets the strategic diversion at the border with the Central American families. He gets all this. And he told me, that 
he, you know, he was doing a lot of cable hits and suddenly they've dried up because this issue is no longer big anymore because Trump signed away his life. Now, to the extent it's an issue, it's the constitutionality of his executive action. So that's just one thing. It's just so frustrating. This is a substance-free movement. Policy doesn't matter. It's all about personality. But anyway, a lot of people are unclear here. They're like, I don't understand, you know, how could it be that a president could just declare an emergency and you know, just say it's needed for the military and just uh, redirect funding without appropriation? I mean, how could that be? Of course I could take this to court. And I'm like, no, there's no – look at the statute. There's no gestatiable limits. I mean that's all political and subjective and something you fight on the political branch. And you know, everyone's upset about all this authority we've delegated to the executive branch. Everyone. Everyone's suddenly worried about the legislative branch of government. And what I find amazing is these same people have no problem with the delegation of authority to the judiciary, which ironically – caused this problem to begin with, but also denuded Congress of their ability to deal with this. Let me explain. The statute actually makes a lot of sense. Originally, when the 1976 Emergencies Act was passed, it had a perfect provision. You'd be like, how in the world could Congress delegate such authority to the president? What if he just decides that anything is an emergency to get what he wants? Well, it had a very clear provision in it that allowed Congress, accorded them a resolution of disapproval to disapprove what he's doing and and, uh, void void it out. Okay? So it would have been the perfect balance. President has the authority. It's in statute. And if they disagree politically, there's a legal framework for them to do it. I mean, it's part of statute. In other words, the same statute that accords that discretion also policed it. That's the legislative process. That's a lot of our statutes. We have bad statutes. A lot of them aren't problematic. But the courts got a hold of it. Here's the irony. The irony of the people who don't like what the president's doing and are crowning the judiciary as king over the three branches, unquestionably the sole and final arbiter. And they're so certain that they have the right to nullify the president here, and they're upset that he's taking power from Congress, don't realize that Congress already had a power that we've allowed the courts to take of this very statute. There's a Supreme Court case for everything. 1983, INS v. Cata. Ironically, ironically, this was an immigration case. Basically, what happened was one of the sections of the INA obviously keeps illegals out, but it offers an avenue for the attorney general if he feels that deportation would result in some sort of extreme hardship he could waive the deportation. But it conditioned that discretion to another provision that the AG had to transmit to Congress a report explaining his action. And then Congress had the power to blow it up. Okay? That was the statute. Very similar to what was originally in the Emergencies Act. And that that could have worked. In comes the Supreme Court in an opinion written by Chief Justice Warren Burger. And he says, no, that's a legislative veto. That's a legislative veto. So we took it as gospel that, well, the Supreme Court's right, and Congress can't check the executive branch like that. 
So then two years later, Congress modified the Emergencies Act and no longer could they disapprove of executive action this way. So as it relates to this particular Emergencies Act, um, Congress could disapprove, but it has to be treated like a statute and the president has to sign it. So that's where we are today where Democrats, because of a couple of Republicans joining and there's no filibuster on a privileged motion, they're very close to possibly getting this passed, both the House and Senate. But of course, Trump will veto it, and obviously, they're not going to have anywhere near the veto-proof majority to overrule us. Now, first off, if nothing else, at least Trump will finally use his veto pen. <laughs> Yay, Mr. President. Fine. But the irony of these people that are so concerned about executive power, and therefore, they want to use ultimately the judiciary to nullify him because they know this is not going to work. They're doing this more for PR because they know the president's going to veto it. The, the sick irony is it was the judiciary that disarmed. It was the, it was the article three branch that disarmed the article one branch from taking on the article two branch that they're complaining about. Who says that, um, this case INSB Chada should be the final say on this. Who says? This is not an individual case or controversy. This is a fundamental political question. You know I mean, it's not like, oh, I have an individual right. You're taking my bump stocks. You're taking my guns. It's a question of the mechanics of what crosses the line from a regulation from Congress conditioning executive acts to downright a legislative veto, which would be a separation of powers problem. That's a gray area. It's a very tough area, unlike other areas of law that the Supreme Court rules on, which are just you know BS. That's a legitimate debate. Both sides could debate. And often, I'll be honest with you, with a lot of these separation of powers questions, often there is no answer because there's two types of gray. There's a gray where we don't know but if Madison were able to come back alive, he could tell us. There's areas that are inherently gray where the, pa- the, the branches merge in their powers and it's just inherently gray. And you got to let the political system work out and let them fight against each other. You don't take it to the courts and the courts could somehow rule on an abstract, like they're this sole and final role on constitutional interpretation, even when it doesn't relate to an in- individual legitimate plaintiff. We could take their opinion under advisement, but the notion that they're the final say, really? But nonetheless, that's what we did. We took it as gospel that that's a legislative veto. The irony is, legally, this would have worked out very well. The president had the authority to determine it's an emergency, and Congress could have said, no, we disagree. And in this case, they probably would have had the votes. We'll see what happens. They've had the votes. But instead, we're told by one of the authors of Roe v. Wade, you know, Berger, who's Roe v. Wade court, that his view of a legislative veto is somehow true. Now, look, there's a lot to talk about with that. It's a close call. I happen to think that Justice is white and Rehnquist and their dissents got it right. My view is that when when you're talking about Congress checking the executive branch, the power of legislation is very strong and they can legislate almost anything. Let me give you a great example. Well, let, let me first explain my view. Of course, Congress can't pass a law saying that any action that the executive ever takes pursuant to law, any action of any sort has to come back to Congress and we get to disapprove of that action. Right? Obviously, that would be an ultimate veto. And let's say you could get a president for whatever reason to sign initially such a law into law, and then it would be functioning. I can't imagine it's constitutional. You could say that maybe even for one sphere of policy, any immigration issue. But... If Congress is just taking one 
one little tiny avenue of one sphere of law, giving the president discretion that it it doesn't have to give, and you know it it could completely take it away. But rather than completely take it away, it just conditions it. It regulates it only if we agree with that point. I don't think that rises to the level of legislative veto, and I think that is still within the regulatory legislative authority, especially in a case like that. The declaration of an emergency, it makes sense. It's not just like your regular things. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you'll be like, well, Daniel, well, you know, if you're saying that if you do it on everything, it's tantamount to you know, taking a vote and nullifying it rather than just passing a new statute. Is, is tantamount to a veto. Well, if you do it on one little part, isn't it the same thing? But I'll tell you that it's not true. Let me give you another example of how this works. The president gets to pick all of his executive authority, and nobody could force him, force upon him a specific person. You must, Congress can't say, you must pick John Smith for DHS secretary, or you can't fire this person, which is why congressional tenure laws are unconstitutional, right? The law that the FBI or IRS commissioner serves for 10 years. No, if the president doesn't want them, they can get rid of them. Now, there is a separate um, parallel, um, you know, a parallel power that obviously only the Senate has that they have to confirm. But you can't tell the president you can't choose this guy, right? You can't do that. It's obvious. Everyone knows you can't limit the president and say you have to pick only such and such guy to serve as as DHS secretary. But on the other hand, everyone agrees Congress could regulate the qualifications as part of legislation. So it could only be a guy that has such and such qualifications. He can get a a security clearance, um, this and that. But then the question becomes, well, at what point does it limit it too much? Let's say they say it has to be this and this and this qualification, and it limits it to just three people in the entire country. These are very deep questions. And at some point, you reach a gray area with all these separation of powers questions. At what point could I, you know, am I using the legislative authority, which I clearly have, in a way that completely forecloses an executive power we know to exist? So it's a similar thing here. You can't say everything has to come to a congressional approval, but I think you could condition one aspect of law. I could hear you could do that. So that's the irony. I believe that Congress actually should have had the power under the original statute to say no to this. But everyone seems to agree, oh, no, no, the courts have spoken. But somehow the courts could give standing to a random state that is supposedly entitled to DOD funding before the case is even ripe to nullify a political question. This is how broken our conception of the courts has been over the years. This is why I just can't get off the topic of the courts. Nothing matters until we answer this question. Who is the final say in our Constitution? If it is just one branch of government, then we don't have a republic. You know, Hamilton always said, if there would be a clear usurpation from even the stronger branch of government, the states would just disregard it. They would treat it as just that, a usurpation. How much more so the unelected branch of government? But if we're going to treat everything they say as gospel, there's nothing left. That's not what judicial review is. That's judicial supremacism. If they have a legitimate case or controversy where in order to arrive at a result in that given case, they want to render their opinion of a constitutional provision, they could do that. But if they want to establish a political rule based on that or just totally violate rules of standing and and separation of powers and just rule on a on a case in the abstract like they often do it would re- be regarded as a, as a usurpation but it's amazing watching now and i see some of you are messaging me how now that josh hawley challenged the legal establishment boy are they coming after him they're now digging up oppo hits on him and everything Again, that never happens when you 
attack someone from the left. Remember Lisa Murkowski voting against Kavanaugh. Didn't receive as much trouble as Hawley's going to receive for questioning a libertarian luminary. So that's how broken our political system is, our legal system. And just, I mean, I, I would obviously be remiss to say or remiss to ignore putting the legal, the court issue aside. Look, if you want to be a conservative and say, I just don't feel, I don't like this executive power. And, and this is kind of what Massey said. Massey didn't say that what the president is doing is necessarily illegal. He's just saying now that there is a vote in Congress on disapproving it, I disapprove. I, I don't approve of the president using this authority. He's obviously very consistent. But when you look at the Democrats, it is really unbelievable. These are people that to this day support Obama and really Trump continuing, taking people who pursuant to statute have to be deported. Yet people came in here, stole identity, and give them work permits, social security cards, and refundable tax credits. You want to talk about appropriations? You're taking funds from the treasury and giving them to people that aren't, aren't, aren't even allowed to be here. That executive action is fine. Anything done to import an invasion, that's lawful. Anything done to protect our sovereignty, that's unlawful. That position is completely indefensible. Wherever you stand on questions of separation of powers, the Emergencies Act, and things like that. And again, it's just amazing thinking about my wife sitting there for four hours today. Because they have to... You, know, you can't apply online because they're very careful about documentation now, except for illegals. All of these guys engaged in identity fraud. There's a whole number of cases. You might, those of you who follow my Twitter account, you'll see I either tweet them or retweet others who talk about this. All these dangerous criminal aliens we're seeing commit heinous crimes. They're allowed to remain in the country because we don't clamp down on identity theft, yet we'll drive American citizens crazy to show their ID for renewing their driver's license. That's where we are. That's where it's at, baby. Judicial supremacism, illegal alien supremacism. We're just going to go through, round off the show with some rapid fire news. Just a couple things wanted to get to. Jared Kushner is already onto his next project. You see, after screwing our borders, so now he's working on importing more legal immigrants from third world countries because we don't have enough cheap labor. But he's also working on his Mideast plan. See, he's going to solve the problem of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He knows exactly what they need. And he said in an interview with an Israeli uh, paper that his aim is to eliminate the borders as they are today in order to guarantee freedom of movement of people and goods. <laughs> I guess he's done with the free movement of people across our border. So uh, he figures he'll have the free movement of uh, Hamas across Israel's border. Nobody wants to take this guy on. This presidency will not succeed until this guy is removed. But nobody in this phony movement has the guts to talk about it. So there's that. We also have in the news something very, very important. Washington Times. Lawmakers seek urgent briefing on U.S. arms in hands of Al-Qaeda. Bipartisan group of lawmakers is demanding answers from the Trump administration about reports that Saudi Arabia and the UAE may have transferred American-made weapons to Al-Qaeda-linked extremist groups in Yemen. Now, look, they're doing this to give Trump a hard time. The reality is we started this under Obama, 
The reality is this is a broader problem. Meaning, if they're going to get together, don't make it political. Find common ground. It's not about Trump or any particular president. It's that in general, the lesson is to stop getting involved in Islamic civil wars. We've probably spent more money on weapons for Al-Qaeda than on a border infrastructure. So that's another issue percolating. Just want to make sure you guys saw it. Um, Because parallel to that, just remember, we're doing the same thing in Syria. My buddy Patrick Pull has an article, Al-Qaeda is still using CIA-provided missiles in Syria. Video posted online Monday, this is Patrick, shows the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, using U.S.-supplied tow missiles in its ongoing campaign against Assad regime forces in the northern province of Idlib. The video was published by Ebba News, which claims that the target was a group of Syrian soldiers. So we are help. We're, we're there to defeat ISIS, but we've already empowered the latest arm of Al Qaeda. There. This is just so pathetic. The, you know all these um, national security figures. The fifty-eight or so Jordan Shackdale wrote about it this yesterday who uh, signed the letter saying how Trump is horrible for using defense funds for the border. Well, I guess national defense is only for Al-Qaeda in Syria. I guess that's all we can care about. So, so sad. And just on a related note, I'm just seeing this from ABC News. Warrior, mother, cancer survivor, Navy cryptologist killed in Syria, laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. If you remember, this is the... ah, Get out of here. You know, folks, I got a new phone. I actually got a new phone, and I thought it would stop doing this to me. And lo and behold, it still is. (laughs) You know, with the Siri going off. I don't know. So if any of you know some sort of setting to get that off, let me know. But sorry about the distraction. (laughs) But anyway, I reported about this a couple months ago, just not a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago to demonstrate just the absurdity of what we're doing um, where we had just four soldiers kind of just walking around in a marketplace, not exactly a defensible position and um, killed by, by a suicide attacker. But it's just so sad that these are the tight, you know, a mother. I mean, this is what we're sending out. I, I just don't understand it. So, so, so sad. It, it, it's just, I don't know, it's heartbreaking. It really is. Two accounts, just, you know, what we're doing with our soldiers in general, but also, also, just this notion that we're sending so many mothers to where you could get killed. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't get it. I just don't get it. So sad. It, it just, I'm at a loss of words. Cause you know, on the other hand, I don't want to say too much on this because, you know, I don't want to diminish ultimately someone who did sacrifice and died in the, in, in the line of duty, but just prospectively, do we really, A, we want to be careful with everyone that we're using their lives properly, but I don't know. I mean, now we're on to even marry, even like mothers, not just kind of single women. It's just, it's a societal question. I just don't understand when we ever decided this as a nation that this is what we're doing. But um, this is where we are. We die for other countries that don't even exist as nation states, fractured Islamic tribal warfare, but not for our own border. Border Patrol chief testified today, earlier at a House Judiciary Committee hearing that the number of groups, in other words, groups of 100 to 350 aliens at a time coming across, which we have 
pretty good reason to believe are the remnants of the caravan sprinkled into our country. It's now up to 68, 68 groups. Can you imagine how many bad guys have been brought into the country as a result of that? I'm going to be running about that a little bit more tomorrow. But that's the real emergency here. And a wall is not going to stop the lawfare, as I said. The wall will stop some of the other bad guys or slow them down while the cartels are distracting us with these people. But, you know, why doesn't the president just shut off catch and release? You know, what I'm starting to hear is that it's not just a problem of those coming with kids. We're not even deporting the single adults. We're letting them go. Last week, I hear a judge in Texas said that they're, they're declining to prosecute re, uh, misdemeanor reentrance. That's 1324B um, in, in statute because we don't have enough beds. I mean, that's a whole nother, uh, there's two types of catch and release. There's just in general, we're not holding anyone with kids, so they're all coming. But even the few we would, like single adults, guess what? There's not enough beds. And guess what? This piece of legislation, this piece of legislation that was signed by the president, giving away this issue, actually shrunk detention beds by 17%. From its current levels, which clearly are not enough for those coming here. So this entire border issue is now a dumpster fire. We've now crowned the courts king. We've created our own constitutional crisis. The worst thing you can do is get the courts to take over everything. And then we have this issue where we don't even have the the issue to deal with. Because now it's been overshadowed. Maybe we'll try to get Mark back on the show, but this is this is just really, really frustrating. Really frustrating. Um, also, I'm going to talk to some ranchers today, just so you know. Personally speak with some ranchers. Maybe we'll try to get one or two on the show. I'll let you know what I discover but a lot more than just the border going on. But, you know, just because Trump signed this into law and ruined our leverage on this issue to at least make it a national uh, prominent or the most prominent issue in national discussion, we're not going to move away from it. But frankly, we're not winning a single issue. Hate to end off on a sour note, but that's what it is. We got to continue speaking the truth, continue applying the pressure until it reaches a breaking point, a point which I don't know when we'll reach, but we got to keep pushing. Thanks for listening. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.